this is Wayne Zell, and welcome to Blueprint for Wealth, your half hour or so of topics and guests that help you realize your personal dreams of wealth and freedom. And today I have a very special guest. He's a friend, he's a client, and he's uh, also a reformed politician, and he's reforming the political environment. Neil Simon, welcome, Neil. Welcome to the podcast today. It's great to be with you, Wayne. I've known Neil for, I, I counted back, it's about 21 years that uh, we've been working together at least. We first started working together when Neil was became the president and CEO of a company called U.S. Law, which was way ahead of its time. Can you tell us a little bit about that venture for a second? I'm, uh, you know, I think people ought to understand that you were at the forefront of doing what other companies are doing today. From 1998 to 2000, I started and was CEO of a company called U.S. Law, which was a national network of small law firms. And we had a website, uslaw.com, which at the time was most heavily trafficked legal website by consumers and small businesses. So we were trying to help people understand their legal issues and find lawyers to, to address them. I think that's when you and I met. That's right. Somewhere in that time frame. Yep. So that's a long time ago. And then the tech bubble hit and, uh, and burst. U.S. law was sold and you went on to work uh, with Mr. Meltzer out in Rockville, Maryland, uh, but became the president and COO of their registered investment advisory firm. And then, then what happened? Um, before U.S. Law, I'd been uh, the COO of a management consulting firm where I was for seven years. And so when I sold U.S. Law, um, Mr. Meltzer approached me about being his president and CEO of that financial services company in Montgomery County, Maryland. And I did that. And then while I had that role, he and I started what was Highline Wealth Management. And it was started as a 50-50 partnership between the Meltzer Group and me. And a couple of years later, I ended up buying them out. And then we continued to grow that business beginning in 02, all the way through really 2019 when I sold the last part of it. And that business today is called WealthSpot. Was it that long ago that this, that this occurred? I, I remember vividly, like it was yesterday. Yeah, we started that business in September 2002. I bought out the Meltzer Group late 2005. And um, I stepped aside as CEO in 2017 when I decided to run for office. And then we sold the last part of it in 2019. So that's a, a long history and a, a short sentence. Well, it was a very uh, productive time for you. You grew a very good business. It was Highline Wealth Management. Then it became Bronfman, uh, Rothschild, and then uh, ultimately uh, was sold to NFP, I believe, and is now Wealthspire, right? That's all right. And it was an independent RIA. And when I started it, I had started to learn about the wealth management industry and was sort of disgusted with a lot of what I found at the time. And this was back in the early 2000s. Just a lot of conflicts of interest, a lot of businesses where people manage money but didn't put their clients' interests first. And there was this new business model of independent RIAs. And so we decided to start one and we're really fortunate to get some great clients early and hire some great teammates that filed the clients and just continued to get referrals and business grew every year. I think, you know, at the end of the first year, we're 70 million, 180 million the next year, then 290 the next year, and 400 mm. after that. And, and then all the way up to 2019, when it was a $6.5 billion business that we sold. I remember when uh, the first, one of the first transactions where you started bringing in outside investments, you were still over a billion dollars of assets under management as a billion five, I think. And, you know, it's, it's amazing 
how this industry has grown and focused more on fiduciary duties and focused on resolving conflicts of interest. What did you see in the conflicts of interest that uh, disturbed you, bothered you, and how did you correct that? Well, a couple of things. Number one, a lot of advisors, particularly at the wirehouses, would sell product to clients with lots of commissions and the clients wouldn't necessarily understand that. And then you also had a lot of instances where they might be positioning themselves as being on the same side of the table and managing assets and collecting fees as a percentage of assets, but they were putting clients in products where their company would make extra money. And that was a conflict of interest. So if I work at Goldman Sachs and I'm managing your money and I put you in a Goldman Sachs fund, I'm now collecting fees very often in two different ways. And that's not as prevalent today. So the RIA industry has grown a ton. It went from a few percentage points of the market when I started my company to today, it's nearly 30%. And a lot of those conflicts are disappearing. They still exist in some places, but it's, it's, I don't think it's as bad as it was 20 years ago. And people are focused on the fact that, you know, wealth managers, wealth advisors, financial advisors really should be acting in the client's best interest, not just what's suitable for the client, correct? Correct. I mean, in an ideal world, you've got aligned incentive structures where what the advisor is incentivized to do coincides perfectly with what's in the client's best interests. And I think we're evolving in that direction. We've still got some some room to, to grow, but the industry, I think, has has improved a lot. And I think, you know, you're, you've led the charge on that. Today, you're involved with a couple of registered investment advisory firms. Is, can you tell us about that? And can you tell us about uh, your involvement with a private equity fund that might be uh, acquiring some of these RIAs? Sure. So I continue to be a big believer in the independent RIA space and in their ability to serve clients really, really well. And so I'm on the board of two large RIAs. One is called Savant. They're based outside of Chicago. They have 25 offices around the country. They manage north of $20 billion. And the other is called Accenture. And they're very big in Texas and Oklahoma, where they're one, one of the biggest RIAs down there. And that's partially owned by a big Texas bank. And those are just two examples of RIAs who continue to gain market share, continue to grow a lot. It's, it's not only good for the clients, it's a really good business model that I believe in. It's got recurring revenues, high visibility into um, future revenues, because if you're doing a good job, you're going to retain almost all your clients. It's got high margins. Um, it's got, you don't have to deal with receivables in that industry. So I really believe in it and particularly in the well-managed ones. So I'm on those two boards. And then over the last few years, I've been approached by a bunch of private equity firms about partnering them look at other deals in this space because they, like me, understand the favorable economics in this space. And so I've partnered with this company called LLR, a private equity firm in Philadelphia that I've gotten to know over the last few years. Really solid people, really committed to this space, and we're looking at a bunch of deals around the country. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Um, the model. I mean, in my book, I, I've discussed various ways of exiting businesses. I've helped clients do that over the years, and that's what inspired me to write the book. And I've worked uh, on sales to private equity firms. Um, what are the pros and what are the cons from the seller's perspective in your mind? When you look at private equity deals, they come in a lot of 
shapes and sizes, right? Anything. My first private equity deal was in 2011, and I sold a few percent of my company. I think it was 7% to a private equity fund. Took in some capital. It enabled me to diversify my own personal wealth, take some, some chips off the table. And then I brought in a partner who was very incentivized to help me grow that business. And we formalized the board and formalized a lot of the, the management and governance structure. And that led to us meeting new clients, new advisors that we hired, and then ultimately even to another private equity firm that invested in our business. So, you know, that's, that's a small example at the beginning that led to some larger transactions later. There are other private equity transactions where people sell a controlling interest the company and, and right. in a way you kind of go to work for the private equity at that stage. But when the deals are done well, everybody is aligned, you own the same type of security. So everyone's rowing the oars in the same direction, trying to accomplish the same things. And a lot of these big private equity firms have great experience growing businesses, making them more profitable, exiting them later, creating wealth for the principals in the business. So, so I think it can it can work really well for the right type of leader. Um, if somebody wants to have a business and really views it as a, a lifestyle business where they make good money and they don't want somebody looking over their shoulder and they aren't very ambitious about the growth of the business, it's probably not the right thing. Um, but I was always very keen to continue to grow the business, to continue to create value for our employees or shareholders. And, and it worked out really well for, for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I work with various RIAs today. Uh, some are, you know, upwards of 40 billion, others, you know, 14, 15 billion dollars of assets under management. I helped one uh, get purchased by a family office back uh, about two years ago, $7 billion transaction. And the thing that I've noticed is there's either a desire to remain in control of your destiny, sort of like what you're referring to as having a legacy uh, that business, lifestyle business that you can continue to be involved in, but growing is, is, is paramount. You always have to grow as a business. And then there are those that just want to get out. And the, so there, I'm seeing a lot of those that want to get out selling to private equity, private equity is helping them grow for five to seven years. And then there's an ultimate exit to a big player. Some of these players are banks, which inherently have these conflicts of interest, don't they? I mean, that's, that's one of the things that I worry about as, as a, uh, as an investor, you know, in these firms, am I going to be turned over to one of these massive banks that have had problems with conflicts of interest in selling products, et cetera, et cetera? What are your thoughts on that? There are some examples of RAs being sold to banks. And I think you're right. It can create conflicts of interest, right? If advisors at that RA are now all of a sudden being pressured to get their clients to take loans from that bank, even if the loans aren't on the best terms or to keep their cash at that bank, even if they're not paying the highest interest rates, that can create conflicts of interest. I don't think that's been very prevalent. Um, the biggest acquirer of RIAs have been the roll-ups, companies like Focus and Hightower, uh, and Beacon Point, Savant, and, and others, and they aren't creating conflicts of interest. Um, What's their end game? What is the end game of a company like you know Savant or... Uh, high tower. I know high tower was originally uh, trying to go public. Um, what what is the end game for these for these giant 
RIAs, although being independent, um, what's their exit strategy? That's different for different companies. You know, Savant, the, the company where I'm on the board that has made a number of acquisitions around the country, they took in some private equity and sold the minority stake and took a bunch of cash off the table. And the plan is to own it and grow it for the long term and create a really valuable enterprise for all the shareholders. And there are several hundred shareholders. I don't know that much about Hightower, but I think that's more of a classic private equity bet play where they're trying to create wealth, take it public, sell it to somebody. I, I think it's more about the financials and less about building a, a really long-term business. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I, I work with a couple right now that uh, are the results of roll-ups and, uh, and taking some minority private equity money. And I think it is, uh, the goal is to just keep growing, not not to become stagnant and become self-satisfied. And, uh, and I, th I think your, your experience is invaluable to these funds. So uh, I applaud you for continuing in that, in that role and, uh, and helping these companies continue to grow and helping them provide conflict-free uh, services to their clients. Let's shift gears for a second. So we've talked about your business side. Uh, you've had tremendous experience. I think you were a CEO four times and you know, you'll continue to be involved in the RIA industry. But something got into your blood in 2017 where you just sort of shifted gears and went and decided to run for the US Senate in Maryland, of all places, where Ben Cardin was entrenched for decades. Uh, you know, I grew up in Maryland and I, you know, I, I remember growing up with Ben Cardin. And I'm in my 60s now, so you can imagine how well entrenched he is. Well, what caused you to do this? What inspired you to get involved in politics and run for office? Well, the truth is it had been in my blood even before 2017. So at our family dinner table every night, we'd bring a topic of conversation. And I have three kids, and they were teenagers at that time. And whatever it was, let's say we were talking about immigration. It ultimately would come down to one of my kids saying something like, well, why doesn't the government just compromise and have a policy where we have tighter border security? And we also have a path to citizenship where people have been here for a while and are law-abiding. And I'd say, well, that's been proposed several times over the last 20 years, and they never get it done because there's too much of an incentive on both sides to appeal to the base of the party and to not compromise. And whatever the topic was, it would lead to conclusions like that. And so I got involved, I was in, involved in the Bipartisan Policy Center, in a group that at the time was called the Centrist Project, and ultimately was encouraged by a bunch of these organizations to, to run. And I ran for U.S. Senate. I was one of five candidates around the country, backed by Unite America and No Labels and, and other groups that was trying to form a fulcrum of moderate independent senators in the U.S. Senate. So if you can imagine the U.S. Senate with 48 Republicans, 48 Democrats, and four moderate independents, the, the impact that you can have on this country is tremendous. So we tried it. Um, we, did, we weren't successful, but I'm really proud of the campaign we ran. Very, very principled, putting America first. I, I still think most of this country is like, they're tired of the red versus blue war. They're tired of reading every day you know, one party demonizing the other and getting nothing done on the issues that we really care about. And they want something different. You know, today, 72% of Americans don't want 
Trump to run. And 73% of Americans don't want Biden to run. Yet, that's our likely matchup in the presidential election. And so the country is really frustrated. In 2017 and 18, when the election was, you know, we thought it was the moment in time when maybe there was an opportunity for moderate independence to win a few seats in the Senate. I think the country's only gotten more divided since then. Um, but it's but it's a very difficult thing to do. Now, you've written a book, which I've read. I read when you sent it to me several years ago called Contract to Unite America, Tax Reforms, 10 Reforms, excuse me, I think of taxes, 10 Reforms to Reclaim Our Republic. And, um, and you've appeared on you know, various broadcasts and you were really out there in 2020 when the book came out, uh, which was after you had uh, gone through the election cycle. The book really synthesizes some core concepts and I wanna focus on a few of them during our remaining time today um, and how we can, as an American public, as a, as a, you know, the general public, whether it's by grassroots or by participation in local politics, how do we accomplish the 10 uh, reforms, like amending the U.S. Constitution to achieve term limits? We're, we're dealing with a situation where on the news, the Republican leader of the Senate freezes up multiple times. We also see the Democrat, a senior Democratic senator from California experiencing great difficulty in functioning. Maybe it's their age, maybe it's not, but they are getting up there in age. I represent people who are elderly and I know how things devolve over time, how your acumen devolves over time. Fortunately, I still have a little bit of mine at the age of 65, but others start to decline and you see that should they be in office what are your thoughts on term limits and how do we accomplish a constitutional amendment which is seems like a herculean feat so let's just take a quick step back and make sure we agree on on the problem that we're trying to address so imagine you want to be in congress wayne zell and your listeners imagine that wayne this really smart competent guy that that you know wants to be in congress and he's going to look at the playing field and try to determine what he needs to do to win. So the first thing he's going to figure out is that he's in a district that is probably locked Democrat or locked Republican. So 85 to 90% of House districts, we already know who's going to win the election next year, which party is going to win. And so then he'll think, all right, let's say I'm in a locked Democratic district in Northern Virginia. Um, how do I win that seat? So the answer is you got to go through the primary. And it turns out that not that many people vote in the primary. Very often, it's less than 10% of registered voters in that party that are voting. Wow. And 10%? Then, wow. And, and they tend to be the most ideologically extreme within the party. So now you, so okay, so you got to get the votes for this ideologically extreme small minority of your district in order to win that nomination. And then you're going to need money to run. And it turns out most of the money that funds these elections is also on the two extremes. So you have every incentive in the world to go to the far left in that example, to go to the far right if you're in some hot Republican district, and almost no incentive to compromise on anything. So that's the problem we're trying to fix. It's not that we have terrible people in government, it's that we have terrible incentives. Um, you know, as far as term limits, most of the people who get into Congress, they like their job and they want to keep it. And it's amazing how many were four term limits before they're elected. And then once they're in there, they become um, opponents. Accustomed to the benefits. Yeah. 
Yeah. So term limits is a tough one. Of the 10 reforms in my book, there are only two that require a constitutional amendment. Term limits is one of them. In the early 90s, there was a movement around term limits. A number of states, about a dozen states, enacted term limits on their federal representatives, meaning that the people in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate could only be there for a limited number of terms. And then the Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional for states to limit the amount of time that their representatives could serve in a federal representation. And so they, on a five to four vote, banned term limits. And so since then, we haven't had term limits. It's, it's the most popular among the reforms in my book. It's 83% of Americans are in favor of term limits for all the reasons that you described them. Sometimes I just ask people, would we be better off or worse off of a country if Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer had been out of the Senate 10 years ago? Um, you know, and- I, back in the day, in the early 90s, late 80s, I was, I was doing lobbying. I was a tax lobbyist as well as a transactional lawyer. And so I did both. And I got to deal with the Congress that was in play at that time, Democrats, Republicans. I worked with Democrats and Republicans, and I got to see both sides of the fence and how they operated. It was very interesting. It wasn't very savory. That's why I stopped doing the lobbying stuff. But um, what I experienced was there was a willingness to compromise in those days, all the way back to the Tax Reform Act of 1986, showdown at Gucci Gulch. It was horse trading, people you know, making sausage, making legislation. It wasn't pretty, but they were able to work together. Guys like Bob Packwood and Rostenkowski, who ended up, you know, going to jail for violating election laws and, you know, and, and other things. It still was a better time in politics in my mind. How do we get back to compromise as, as a society, as opposed to going down these rabbit holes where we're going, where, the, you know, the right-wing Republicans are extremely vocal and, you know, letting quote unquote fake news drive the train. And the same thing on the, on the side of the Democrats, we've got the left wing on the Democrats doing very similar things, both sides using dark money to finance, uh, their, their efforts. Um, how do we get back to compromise? What is, what is the, the formula? So in a way we're getting exactly what the system is designed to produce, right? So there is no incentive to compromise right now. So if you believe that the way I do, then what you need to do is change that incentive structure. And it starts with electoral reforms. A few years ago in Alaska, we got past final four voting, which is they now have one big open primary. So no Republican primary, no Democratic primary. And out of that primary, the top four advanced to the general election. And then in the general election, they use ranked choice voting instead of a first-past-the-post voting system that we're used to in Virginia or Maryland or where I live. And what it does, it completely changes that incentive structure. So in the Alaska, first of all, this is true for their U.S. senators and their U.S. congressmen, but the example I'll give is in their state legislature, where the ruling coalition, the caucus that controls their state legislature, is bipartisan It's moderate Republicans and moderate Democrats working together, excluding some of the extremists on both sides. And they have one of the most productive state legislatures anyway, because those people can get reelected without having to worry about the base of their party. 
they can get reelected by appealing to moderate Democrats, moderate Republicans, moderate independents, and they have a path to victory. That's how Lisa Murkowski was reelected, even though she, um, she voted to impeach Trump. And she still found a way as a Republican to get reelected in the U.S. Senate because she knew she would be one of the top five, which she was. And then she ran in the general using ranked choice voting. So whatever you think of Trump, the point is that there's a path for a reasonable, moderate candidate who's willing to compromise, willing to put the country first. There's a path for them to win rather than having to go through a base of the party and appealing to extremists all the time. So those are the type of reforms that we want. We just got it passed in Nevada. Last cycle, there are elements of it in Maine and in other states and efforts wow. around the country to, to pass similar types of reforms. So that's that's what I think the answer is. You have to change the incentive structure in the system. Otherwise, we're kind of people expecting different results from the same exact activities. So it's at the state level where it starts. Yes. So a lot of this is based on the reform movement that happened in the early 1900s and what we learned from that is that it does start at the local and state level. And then once you get momentum and you're in more and more states, a lot of these things can be passed on a national basis. So the reforms in my book, eight of the 10 can be passed through legislative acts or um, by referendum. It's just two that require constitutional amendments. And those are hard. Like redistricting and gerrymandering. <laughs> yeah, avoiding it's, that. It's, it's crazy. Now redistricting, is important. And that's part of why almost 90% of our house districts are uncompetitive in the general election. Meaning we know which party is going to win in advance. But even if we had perfectly drawn districts, that would still be 75%. So we would create about 15% more competitive districts, which is important because when you look at the people in Congress who are the most likely to compromise and collaborate and actually do things, they tend to come from swing districts because they know they need to appeal to people from both sides of the aisle. Um, so it would be better to have 25% competitive districts rather than 10 to 15, but it's not going to be a silver bullet. Yeah. And the idea of encouraging bipartisanship, what procedures could they change in Congress that would encourage bipartisanship as opposed to this uh, polarization that occurs today? So, you know, there's some procedures they can propose in Congress. Um, some people think the earmarks actually propose the type of compromise way that you described earlier. Um, other people propose civility pledges and things like that. I think that the higher impact activity is to change the way the congressmen are elected, to do things like the way Alaska just did and Nevada just passed, and that's being proposed in, in other States, you, you need to change that incentive structure so that politicians don't go to sleep every, every night worried that they're going to get primary, right? They're worried they're going to be the next Joe Crowley who lost the primary to AOC when she got, I think it was less than 4% of the voters in her district. It was 14,000 votes. You know, I got 86,000 when I ran for percentage. She got 14,000 votes in that primary. That was enough to beat him. And now she's been in Congress a few times. That's what they're worried about. We got to get them to worry more about are the rational, pragmatic voters in my district going to think I'm doing a good job on behalf of them and the country. That's actually not what they go to sleep worried about. So obviously, we're not going to be able to do that in time for the presidential election coming up in 2024. And, you know, we're going to have a Republican candidate and we're going to have a Democratic candidate. And it looks like we know who those candidates are going to be 
even before we've gone through the primary season. Um, what about 2028? What do we do to get something changed? Because, you know, I, I don't even want to think about what's going to happen in 2024 because I don't personally, I'm not in favor of either of the two candidates. And that's my own personal opinion. But what do we do to, to change things towards 2028? How is, you know, as a final word, what would you suggest uh, we can do as a public uh, to, to cause this movement to continue to grow? Yes. Yeah, so first, in 2024, there is an effort by no labels to have what they're calling an insurance policy for America, a third-party ticket that's likely to be somebody like a Joe Manchin or a Larry Hogan or Mitt Romney. So there is hope that, Wayne, you may have a choice other than the, the two likely nominees, um, former President Trump and President Biden. In terms of what we can do before 2028, I think the key stuff Americans can get involved with is trying to advance electoral reforms within their state to change this incentive structure, trying to open their primaries, trying to use ranked choice voting or some people call it instant runoff elections, campaign finance reform that limits the power of the extremes. And the more of those changes we implement state by state, the more rational our system becomes. And then hopefully eventually we get to a point where some of those changes are implemented nationally. Um, in terms of the presidential election in 2028, I think the single best thing we could do is to change the electoral college system so that the votes are allocated proportionally within each state rather than winner take all. Right. right? You got to realize because almost every jurisdiction other than two allocates the votes winner take all. The presidential candidates have no reason to campaign in 40 out of the 50 states. There are only a few that are legitimately up for grabs. And then a very small number of voters within those small number of states end up with this disproportionate um, impact on the election. And I think that's that's part of what's broken in the system as well. Well, thank you. Um, you know, we've been talking with Neil Simon, who is a business genius and political savant. I mean, a man for all seasons, uh, a renaissance man that uh, read his book. I really ad advise everyone to pick up a copy of the book. It's called Contract to Unite America, 10 Reforms to Reclaim Our Republic. It's brilliant. It has great ideas. Maybe not all of these reforms can be achieved, you know, particularly the constitutional amendments, but maybe they can. But it starts at our level. And uh, all of us should be interested in that, particularly if we are not leaning far to the left or far to the right. Most of us are in the middle. Most of us share, you know, common goals and common obje objectives. So read Neil's book. Neil, thank you for being a special guest on Blueprint for Wealth today. Really appreciate it, Wayne. Always great to see you. It's good to see you too. And my best to your family. IRA, Individual Retirement Account, Beneficiary Trusts. These trusts be have become popular as a result of the Setting Every Community Up Retirement Enhancement Act, also known as the SECURE Act, which was enacted back in 2019. And it was amended in 2022, and it's known as SECURE Act 2.0. But the, the act basically says that if you have a, a required minimum distribution from an IRA trust, it must be distributed out to the beneficiaries within 10 years of becoming a participant in the IRA. And that 
is a major change in the law from what it was all the way back to the early 2000s. So now we, instead of stretching it out over the lifetime of the beneficiary, we've got to pay it out over 10 years unless you're a spouse or you're a disabled individual or you're uh, chronically ill or you've got an individual that is a minor and once they reach the age of majority, the 10-year rule kicks in. So this creates an opportunity for you to continue protecting the assets for the benefit of your kids, your beneficiaries, and your spouses. If you want to do so, you can use this IRA trust. If you're the IRA participant, you've got an IRA, but in, in between you and the IRA, after you're gone, you might create an IRA trust. The trust beneficiaries might be your spouse and your kids and other loved ones. And you designate the trust as a beneficiary of your individual retirement account. And then when required minimum distributions have to be made in that 10-year period or, or over a life expectancy of a disabled individual or a spouse, then you can pay them out to the trust. And then the trust can be structured either to pay out the required minimum distributions or to accumulate them. So this gives the trustee of the trust power to make decisions regarding trust distributions of an IRA instead of having it paid directly to the beneficiary. What does that do? It gives you protection for your beneficiaries from themselves, known as spendthrift protection. It gives protection from their creditors. It gives them protection from divorce. If you have a special needs individual that's a beneficiary, this might be a good vehicle to use for that. It also gives you good centralized investment management of the assets that do come in from the IRA. And it allows you to do estate planning and have quote unquote dead hand control after you're gone. So there's two types. There's a conduit trust and an accumulation trust. And the conduit trust basically says that you're going to pay out any required minimum distributions that do come into the trust, and they must be paid out immediately to the trust beneficiary. So if you've got a 10-year stretch of an IRA, it's going to be paid out to the beneficiary over 10 years. But it doesn't give you as much asset protection as an accumulation trust, where you can actually keep these required minimum distributions in the trust, pay tax on the distributions that are received by the trust and kept in the trust, but then it keeps the assets in trust for the beneficiaries so that it can be protected from creditors and so on. Mm -hmm.